Let's pray together before I kick off. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we can come into your house tonight and you can be the lifter of our heads and the shield about us. And we pray tonight that you would set our hearts on fire with a desire to serve you and be close to you. That just as the disciples said when they reported back, having walked with you on the road, did not our hearts burn within us? That's what we will say to you tonight. We want you, Lord, to come and kindle a flame in our hearts. So please come and assist me as I speak and help all of us to catch sight of you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do want to thank you for coming out. Dark night, cold night, rainy night. What better night to praise the Lord and to be encouraged. But I do appreciate it. It's encouraging that so many people have booked. Uh, one or two of you actually booked twice. So I've been thinking that's a case of double vision. <laughs> I value these evenings that we've got tonight and next week for a number of reasons I think they're special. Honestly, I view these midweek evenings as like family time together. In my view of things, running a church, Sundays is our shop window. That what we have, the kind of grid I've got in my mind is, I do hope we're as welcoming as we can be to seekers that are coming by this church. I do hope that we're sensitive to what they'll think. I do hope we make it easy for them to encounter Jesus Christ, etc., etc., etc. But all families need time to huddle together, don't they? And when you huddle with your family, you can speak more personally and you can share what's on your heart. And uh, I speak to you tonight as the family of St. Michael's. And um, what a lovely treat. And these particular evenings, this week and next week, are important because, as you know, I've set them aside as vision evenings. The scriptures teach us that without a vision, the people perish. That's a very familiar verse. Proverbs 29, verse 18. Actually, the modern translation puts it like this in the NIV. Without vision, people cast off restraint I think what that's really saying is, if we don't know where we're headed, we run around in all directions, often in circles. And it doesn't really work in any organization, whether it's the army or a hospital or a bank or parliament or even the church. If you don't know where you're going, you will waste a huge amount of energy. It's a good investment, a good use of time to be clear about what the vision is, what the purpose is of an organization, and a church is no different. I remember once seeing a cartoon strip. It was a Charlie Brown stroke Peanuts cartoon strip. And in the first section of the cartoon, Charlie Brown was just firing arrows into a fence. And then in the second strip of the cartoon, second picture, he was walking to the fence. And in the third picture, he was drawing with a piece of chalk a circle around each of the arrows in the fence. 
and the caption was, this way you can't miss. But you can't run life that way. You can miss, actually, if you just fire your arrows off willy-nilly. And it's noticeable in scripture, if you study it, and I know you do, that most of the key players, I could probably make a case for all of them, actually, spend time deliberately seeking God's vision for their lives, and most often for the people they're leading. And so you'll find Moses will go to the top of a mountain to get clear space and direction of where he's meant to be leading his people and what's meant to be going on. Nehemiah strategizes what he'll do. Jesus spends time alone with the Father to discuss with him what he should be doing, drawing aside and sorting out what it is God is calling him to do. And God's vision for his church is not trivial. It's life-changing. I might repeat that because it's so important. God's vision for his church isn't trivial or marginal. It's life-changing. I'm sure like many of you, I've spent a great deal of time listening to lots and lots and lots of podcasts and sermons. And there was a time when I used to receive a weekly cassette, which dates it quite a bit, from Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And Bill Hybels was the pastor then. And one of the things he was incredibly good at was setting vision. And in fact, he would run a masterclass. It ran in the space of a week for uh, church workers and volunteers. And one of the tutors was an international businessman. As it happens, not, said Bill Hybels, not a believer. And when Bill Hybels asked him, why are you willing to come and tutor in my church? The, the man said, because what you do is so significant, even though I don't believe it, I'd like your church to succeed in its aims, which is interesting in itself. And at the end of a week, the, this um, businessman walked amongst the desks of um, members of the conference, and he just stopped at one of them and said, tell me what the mission is, which is kind of straight on straight vision, tell me what the mission is of Willow Creek. And the candidate said, well, the, the mission statement of this church is turning irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. And the visiting professor said, what do you think of that as a mission statement? What do you think of that as a purpose? And the student said, well, if I might say so, I think it's one hell of an ask, which was slightly inappropriate language. But what they're putting their finger on it is what that church stood for was not trivial. If it was going to achieve its ends, then lives would be changed. Whole lives would be changed for good. That's a huge target to aim for. God does change lives for good. And tonight, what I'm going to do is begin, next week we'll go on, but begin to look at what I believe God is calling us to do and to be. And by way of introduction, I, I will say a number of things. It's important to remember about a vision for a church that it's not originality that counts. It's faithfulness. If I, as your new vicar, sprung a complete surprise on you and set out a vision that was completely new and didn't overlap with anything you'd ever heard before, 
I think you should scratch your head and say, hey, this is suspicious. Because what we're called to do is not be original, though we might be. It's to be faithful to the mission and mandate that God has given us. And the second thing I would say by introduction might be a surprise. One of the purposes of these vision evenings is to put a sign on the bus. Not many of us travel by London buses, I'm guessing right now, we're a bit apprehensive. But when you do, you don't just get on a bus and hope that you'll like the destination. You, you look at what number bus it is and you want to make sure it's going in the direction you want to travel. And I think it's helpful to have a clear sign on the bus, on the church, setting out the kind of direction of travel. A long time ago now, when I was church shopping and hopping in London, and I came to this church, I asked the then vicar, Teddy Saunders, Teddy, how will I know if this is the right church for me? And he gave me such a great response that all the times I've been asked that question, and I've been asked it certainly in the hundreds of times in different churches, in different ways, people have asked, how do I know if this is the right church? I've repeated what Teddy said to me, and I'll tell you what he said. He said, Rupert, this is what you need to look out for when you go into a church. You want to imagine yourself in that church, let's say for six months or a year, and you want to ask yourself, if I plug into this church, will I grow spiritually? And he said, if I was to use technical language for that, I would say, the question is, will this church minister to me? And then he said, the second thing, once you've settled down in a church, you want to ask yourself, is this a church in which I can contribute to the kingdom of God? Or he said, to put a, te a technical language, is this a church, once they get to know me and I'm trusted, in which I can minister? And he said, Rupert, when you find a church which ministers to you and in which you can minister, you should stay there for as long as that's true. And I think that was very, very wise advice. And I couple it with saying, the calling God has placed upon my life, one of the things that is cherished and sacred to me, my life's task is to release people to bear as much fruit as they can for the kingdom of God. So that at the end of their lives, when like me, you face God face to face, he will say to you, well done. And it's more important that you should belong to a fellowship in which you're growing spiritually and in which you can contribute than that you belong to any one particular church. And I, I am so aware, and I'm not threatened by this at all, that it would be perfectly natural for there to be some churn when a new person takes over in a church. If you discern, as I'm talking tonight and next week, that if you hang around St. Michael's, you're not going to grow spiritually, you're going to stagnate, then you must go to where you will grow, because that's what's important. The only thing I would say to you is don't be a drifter, because a spiritual vagrant uh, is asking for trouble. So that you really shouldn't be. And I'm hoping that you know, with transparency and openness, these 
evenings will make it very easy for you to buy in or jump out. Please buy in. And I think these vision evenings can be wonderful fun. Uh, as I've prepared, uh, I've felt it's as if I've been into the vault and got out the family treasures. That's what I felt like. And it's felt to me very exciting and has filled my heart with gladness to bring the treasures into the sunlight. And that's what I'm obviously hoping will happen for us, as they've sparkled my heart a sword. And what we're putting under the spotlight tonight is God's treasured possession. Have you ever watched the Antiques Roadshow? I, I love watching the Antiques Roadshow. It, it's so undemanding. You just sit there and it floats by and it's very innocent and pleasurable and it's on a Sunday night when I'm knackered and it, it's great. And we've watched it over years and years. And of course, what we all wait for is that moment when the picture that's been hanging on the wall next to the dartboard and has got holes in it from the darts, when you suddenly get told, oh, that's worth an absolute fortune. That's valued at millions. That's an overlooked masterpiece. Actually, it always reminds me when I think of the Antiques Roadshow uh, of a moment when many years ago we were putting our son to bed and he'd been a page at somebody's wedding. He was about 10 years old. And uh, he was thrilled to bits because as a present, he was given what looked like a silver propelling pencil. And he looked at it and he said to us, for insurance purposes, what's it worth? <laughs> and we knew too much antiques roadshow. But anyway, <laughs> it's an amazing thought, is it not, that God, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who's infinitely inventive and wealthy and powerful and creative, he's told us what his treasured possession is. It's us. It's us. It's his family. It's his church. If we were to have Jesus come in the flesh and show him round London and say to him, what's the most treasured, cherished thing you have in London? What impresses you most? It wouldn't be the crown jewels. It, it, it would be us. It's his people. And we know that, actually. We experience that, that to belong to God's family is, as well, our pride and joy. And we want to be people who say, come on in and taste the new wine, the wine of the kingdom. And it is as if God's family, the church, is like, I think to many, it's like dusting down a Van Gogh or polishing a, a Picasso. It's not immediately obvious to many that this is where the treasure is. But it is. And let me just tell you the spirit in which I set out my vision tonight. I, I was watching a documentary about a rather aged conductor called Bernard Heitink, who's 90, a very famous and accomplished conductor. And uh, he was reflecting on his life as a conductor. And he has conducted, really, most of the world's eminent orchestras. And he said something very interesting in passing. He said that the orchestra I most enjoyed conducting was the London Philharmonic. Now, I mean, in the, in the kind of International League of Orchestras, I think it's fair to say not many would put the London Philharmonic at the very top. You'd kind of be looking at the Berlin Philharmonic or something else. But he said, 
The reason I so enjoyed conducting them above everyone else is because we had a relationship somehow, a chemistry, in which we brought out the best in each other. He said, I did my best, but they responded so magnificently, I felt free to raise my game even a bit more. And then they raised their game a bit more, and then they raised my game a bit more. And before long, our music, make, music making hit a pitch that I just loved conducting that orchestra. And, and that is my hope, personally, in coming into St. Michael's. It, I think we could bring the best out of one another. And as a preacher, you know, it's one of those things. When you, when you see a congregation is listening, that their lives are changing, that they're praying for you, that they're actually doing something about what you're saying, your game goes up. And, and that's what I'm fully expecting will happen. That is the spirit of what I'm bringing to you tonight. It's not beating you over the head with a stick. It's saying we're in this as a partnership. And I just want to set a few fears to one side that you might be having. Some people have done their research and you've been telling me all about my previous churches in Cambridge and Salisbury. And friends, I know this is not Cambridge or Salisbury, thank God. <laughs> and what was right for Salisbury wasn't right for Cambridge and won't be right for here because every single place is different. So if you're worried I'm about to superimpose on you something, a template from somewhere else, that's not going to happen. Because actually what's dissimilar about this church is more obvious than what's similar when I look over my shoulder. And in any event, COVID has redrawn the map for all of us, hasn't it? Absolutely all of us. We wouldn't have chosen this, but... St. Michael's cannot be the same church in the year going forward as it was in the year going backwards. Every single church, and St. Michael's can't opt out of this, is having to review, is having to renew, is having to reshape in the light of the current predicament. But despite the current predicament, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Another day I'll teach you about the festal shout, which is something that I learnt here but we won't do that now. We nearly will, but we won't. So I'm going to highlight this week and next five defining characteristics, values of God's irresistible family. And that's why you have the logo there of the Olympic rings, because they're all overlapping, they're all intertwined, and they belong together. And the passage we're going to look at, if you've got access to a Bible, is Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. I'll read it for us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love this passage. It, it's become for me a bit of a, 
a, a guiding star for me. It's a passage that many, many church leaders lean into when they want to set a vision for their church. And the reason for that is pretty obvious. It's because it looks a bit like a picture postcard description of what was going on. It's quite an easy passage to overlook because it kind of comes between events. But it is a good thumbnail description of some of the qualities that shine out of the early church. And as I say, you know, many, many church leaders, many, uh, look at this passage. And I'm not claiming originality uh, as I do say. It does encourage me, though, when I look at it tonight to remember that the whole book of Acts started in lockdown, that um, they, they were praying in an upper room. And you read at the end of John's gospel that for fear of the Jews, they locked the doors. They were in lockdown. And being in lockdown does not shut God out. Uh, he's quite good at launching things. Well, that's patronizing. He ex excels at launching things from a lockdown start. Let's notice before we get into the five attributes that I'm going to major on, just let's notice these were people with attitude. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. They devoted themselves. They, they were highly motivated. They were highly intentional. They were hugely focused. And we know they couldn't have made much progress otherwise, could they? And I know I've said this already in one of the few talks I've already given here, but we know and accept in other walks of life that we don't succeed in anything without work and applying ourselves. I suppose it's not exactly true. You can achieve being a first-class slob, layabout and wastrel without too much effort. But you can't achieve anything worthwhile in our lives without applying ourselves. And we do know that, whether it comes to study or academic work or sport, or being a great parent, or a teacher, or a friend. And it's every bit as true, following Christ and being obedient to his vision. And these people in that early church were not casual. They were very intentional. They're not just sitting around expecting God's blessing to happen. They're surely highly motivated, focused, and passionate. And let me share you, with you a secret I've discovered. I've discovered that no matter how small your church is or how big your church is, when an individual or a family arrive who are fully committed and in earnest and fully open to the Lord, you notice. And because of them, God is able to open whole avenues of ministry. And it's just one of those things. Um, we could have a congregation of seven or 800 here and we would still notice if a family came in or an individual came in who was fully committed to the Lord. God would bring them to our attention and he would build his kingdom through them. And the strange thing is, anyone can opt in like that. It's an open invitation. But in case you're thinking that I'm saying that sheer effort makes things happen, it, it isn't that, is it? In, in this little, little paragraph, it, it isn't sheer effort, it's God's presence that makes all the difference. 
Some years ago now, I was speaking to a small gathering of about 40 people in a little house party organized by some friends um, in Sussex. And there were a group of people who had never met each other before. And uh, during the course of a few days, a very nice, well-meaning, retired army person started sharing with the whole group how horrified he was that in his village the church was shrinking. And he, from what I remember what he said, it went something like this, you know, the post office has closed, um, shops have closed, and now the church looks like closing, and it's simply not good enough. And uh, so he zealously went about writing a plan for its salvation. And I can't quite remember what the plan was, but it was sort of along the lines of we could be a bookshop on Tuesday, a flower shop on Wednesday, a coffee shop on Thursday, and a cinema on Friday. That was the sort of plan. And, and then he made it into a business plan, and then he made it into a strategy, and then he sent it off to the bishop, the archdeacon, the rural dean, and anyone else he could think of who he thought might have influence. But as I listened to him, and he, he was absolutely delightful, as I listened to him, there was one big gaping problem with this. His plan didn't seem to include making space for God. And in truth, I think the reason was because he honestly didn't know that God is meant to be connected with his church. And I found a way of coming alongside him and saying to him, let's call him Bob. Bob, I think it's amazing what a zeal you've got to see your church come alive. But if I can find a nice way of saying this to you, Bob, I really think God wants to be included in your plans. And, and I would just wonder if, if you would be prepared to ask him to help. And I didn't say that cynically or attacking him, just gently, because it's true. And he said, Rupert, I would love God's help. And as I prayed for that, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And he shook all over. And I promise you, if I gave you 100 people and asked you to pick one out as a candidate for not shaking, you would have picked him. But it wasn't the shaking that was important. His, it got back to me some months later that his wife had been praying for him for years. And his whole family were aghast at how his heart changed. It's God who wants to build his church. That's what we're about tonight. It's the presence of the Lord, not techniques or anything like that. And the first of the five circles stands for this, the word of God. The heading would be this, let the word grow. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And one thing of the many things that you know at St. Michael's and realize very well is that the word that we hold in our hands of scripture is not just a piece of advice. It's God's word to us. I love it that at the height of the last coronation service, and who knows if this will happen in the next one, at the height of the last coronation service, when this very young girl, the queen, is on the throne and she has the crown jewels on her head, literally, and she has an orb in one hand and a scepter in the other. You know, she is bedecked 
in splendor. With all that pageantry, which, you know, we Brits do so well, I always think you have to have had an empire and lost it before you can do that. But, we, you know, it's brilliant. It's, it's absolutely magnificent. But at the height of the service, when there she is, this elderly man who was the Archbishop of Canterbury comes forward and on a cushion is a Bible. And it's a Bible just like the Bible you've got at home or on your phone. And he says this, we present you with this book. Get this, the most valuable thing this world offers. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Wow. Wow. And you might think this is so obvious that it doesn't need to be said. But I wonder if it is so obvious. There is such terrific ignorance about who Jesus is. The best reason for not being a Christian and the most common reason people are not Christians, not followers of Christ, is because they've never met him. They have no idea who it is they could be following, who it is that could change their lives. And you find out through the word of God. Some years ago, I was watching Seven Sides Rugby on the television, and one of the teams playing was Samoa. And uh, on the side of their, um, their rugby shirt was written, P-H-I-L 413. And at one point, the ball got kicked into touch and there was a long delay and the commentator was having to blag and sort of fill the gaps. And he said, um, you might be wondering what it is the Samoans have got written on their sleeves. Phil 413. This is a reference from the Bible, the book of the Philistines, chapter 4. And, and, and I thought, well, out of the horse's mouth. <laughs> there is such amazing ignorance about what the Word of God has. And of course, the reason the Word of God is so important to us is because it brings us face to face with the Son of God as he really is. This is the normal way, the, the absolutely reliable way of encountering the truth. And um, we need never apologize in the sense of, we need never be ashamed to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when people say, well, what about other religions? And uh, we wonder if that's a new problem. Don't you think it was an issue for the disciples? Don't you think that they often thought, well, we could just take Jesus off the pedestal and make him part of the pantheon? No, they couldn't, because there's only one person who is God in the flesh who's died for you. There's only one person who can forgive your sins. There's only one person who's been raised from the dead, and it's him who gives us life and freedom and hope. And there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So whatever the problems are of proclaiming this, there are much more problems in avoiding it. And this is foundational to the strength of any church. If you're going to be God's church, you've got to build your church upon God's word. To abandon God's word is a mistaken thing to do. Jesus has colossal confidence in his word. 
He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and won't be condemned. And Paul felt just the same. You know all of this. I'm only just kind of polishing the family silver, really, aren't I? When Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm one of a few people still alive, I think. I know about me and 10 others who enjoy reading the sermons of Charles Spurgeon. And uh, I'm going to ask you to suffer a bit of Spurgeon now as I tell you in antiquated language why the Bible is so treasured for him. Anyone that reads this wondrous book aright might well value it because of the boons which it, it will bring. It will tell us how to be rid of all our sin and free from the slavery of Satan. It will teach us how to bear the present burdens and quit all needless worries. It will be a guide to us through the maze of life, a pillow for the bed of death. It will give us joy and peace through believing when the thickest troubles gather around. It will make us ready for the future world. Whatever we need for time or for eternity, this book shall either give it to you or point you to him who has it ready to give to you if you'll surrender before him. It's a gold mine of truth and infinitely more. It's a treasury of blessings and delights. And even then I haven't fully described it. Yes. <laughs> and for those of you who want something more contemporary and down to earth and readily accessible, try Mike Pilavachi, who says this, if we're really honest, we often struggle to read the Bible ourselves, but we've discovered in our own feeble way that we abandon this book at our peril. We've discovered that the Bible is the book of truth and the book of life. It feeds us, it challenges us, it guides us, it comforts us. And more than anything else, the Bible points us beyond itself to its author. It points beyond itself to God. To put it bluntly, it's very hard to get to know God without reading the Bible. They're right, they're right. So the question for us, for us who, you know, we're, I suspect looking around, you're not Bible novices. So far, I haven't told you anything about the Word of God. You really don't believe already. The question is, what impact is it having upon you? When Liz and I went off to do a curacy in Oxford, we ran a little Bible study group. I must have been about 25, 26. And um, Oxford's a very transient sort of place. And the first couple of weeks, we had eight people, and I think this more or less stayed at that. But there was, I remember, a student from China who disappeared. And um, it wasn't my habit then. It's not my habit now to chase people up. You know, it's a free world. They decide not to come back. They presumably made a decision they don't want to come back. And, you know, fair enough. But then about nine weeks later, he showed up. And um, he, he seemed extremely congenial, and he didn't apologize that he hadn't been there for the missing however many weeks. He just tucked into the supper and attended the Bible study group. And eventually, curiosity got the better of me. And I think as I was seeing him out the house, I said to him, whatever his name was, forgotten now, but, you know, James, um, we've missed you these last eight and nine weeks. And he said, oh, oh, sorry, Rupert. So the thing is, 
I learned such a lot the first two weeks. I thought, until you've got that into your life, there's no point in coming back for any more. I thought, wow. Wow. What an interesting worldview. Isn't it? Isn't it? Let me let you into a secret. After you've been following Christ for a little while, after you've walked around the block a few times, you discover that a large amount of what it means to be a follower of Christ is deciding to do what you already know. They are the cats out the bag. It's not new truth you need from me every week. It's deciding to do what you already know. It's a lifetime's accomplishment to learn how to love your enemies, to learn how to be forgiving, to discover how to be generous, to have a character like Jesus. That's what we're going to egg each other on to. Not just accumulating facts, not, as someone said rather naturally, not just information, formation. That's a principal target of what we stand for at St. Michael's. And you'll hear me say this again and again and again. We're going to make space to change because the word of God's got to change us. It's got to change me. It's got to change you. It's written that we might become more Christ-like. Holiness is what God is after in his house. And we just put up our hand and say, yes, Lord. Or you don't. And you dig your toes in and say, no, Lord, I'm just happy to be what I am. In which case, uh, you will stagnate. So that's, that's the first thing. Let the word of God grow. Secondly, they let the love show. If you look at this paragraph and just read it through, don't you find it attractive? Isn't there a part of you that says, I wish I could have been part of this community? I'm given to understand that sometimes companies spend a fortune to ask someone to invent a strap line that will be memorable for their company or their outfit. And they do lodge in the mind. You know, as I um, thought about it, I thought of We Try Harder, another company that said We Dry Cleaner, another company that said Because You're Worth It, another, another something or other that says Every Little Helps. Ever heard of any of these? <laughs> And another one that says, think different. Did you know that Jesus has written the strap line for his church? Because he has. But it's a bold church that would be brave enough to put it above its door. It's see how they love one another. That's what people are meant to think when they spend time amongst Jesus's family. Wow. See how they love one another. And as I look at this description in this little paragraph, initially on the veneer, it just looks, oh, that's nice. And then when you dig a little bit more 
and you think about what they were prepared to do for one another in this little passage, they must have loved one another. They, they gave so much time to each other. That's so precious. They kept spending their money on one another. They were radically generous. We're told they sold their possessions and gave to the fellowship. They met every day in the temple courts, verse 46. You don't meet with people every day unless you value them. And they shared food with each other, verse 46. With glad and sincere hearts, we're told. That's quite a telling phrase, actually. The, the word for sincere, I'm told, means literally, is, in the Greek, it means without wax. And apparently, if you went down to the marketplace and you sold, say, a, a silver vase, a bit like if you buy a dodgy second-hand car, which is just um, more filler than metal, they would fill up these silver trinkets with wax and paint them silver. And you wouldn't realize till later that what you bought wasn't on the inside what it looked like on the outside. And what Luke is saying about these people is their relationships had integrity. What you saw on the outside was sincere. It was without wax. And you couldn't keep these people apart. When I um, worked in the city, which I didn't do for very long, so I can't really trade on it for too much, but a friend of mine worked in Lloyd's as an underwriter. He was a junior, but he sat at this table. And um, the way Lloyd's was set out then, I don't know if it is now, there was very old school. There would be large tables. And the head of the underwriting syndicate was very much a kind of fatherly figure, the um, authority figure. And my little friend Chris was there. And um, I asked Chris to tell me his story. He said, well, Rupert, the thing was, that I got hooked up with the Hare Krishna people. Now, I don't know if you remember Hare Krishna people. Um, in many ways, if you don't, so much the better. But they, they were a little cultish group of people with shaved heads, as I remember them, and little symbols. And they used to walk around Trafalgar Square, places like that. Is this roughly right? And, and they sort of made those kind of Tibetan noises. And um, it was all very mysterious. And he joined this cult. And he got more and more and more into it. And one day, the day came when he went to the head of his underwriting syndicate and he handed in his notice. And he said to this man, this man said to Chris, why are you leaving? You know, you're doing quite well. You could be quite good at this. And he said, because I've joined this group of people called the Hare Krishna people and I'm about to sell up everything and go abroad and this is what I'm going to do. And the man went home and he um, went to his wife and they must have had a conversation that evening, and they were both absolutely horrified. And in the morning, when he came to uh, Lloyd's, he, he got young Chris to him, and he said, Chris, I told my wife what you're going to do, and we are horrified. He said, Chris, we are not Christians. My wife and I are not Christians. But I know that on Tuesdays, Christians meet together around the corner at a church called St. Helens Bishopsgate. And whatever Christians believe, it can't be worse than Harry Krishna. So come with me, and we're going. And he literally led him by the arm to St. Helens Bishopsgate. 
And because I'm telling his story up the front here, you know what's going to happen. Chris yielded his life to Jesus Christ. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And he said to me, you know, and this is some years later, he said to me, you know, Rupert, I couldn't believe my eyes. I walked into this church building and it was full of people. And they were praising God. And the, the presence of God was there. Something was so, so different. And I heard this message and I knew it was true. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he said, do you know, Rupert, every single day for the next week at lunchtime, I would run out of Lloyd's. I would run down Bishopsgate. I would open the door of St. Helens and I'd go in and sit down and I'd be shaking with relief that it wasn't a dream. This place really did exist. And I really had connected with God. Isn't that great? Doesn't that make your heart go, yes. And, and that's how it is with God's family. His church. There are people out there, heavens, there are people in Chester Square who would love to meet with the living God. And there are people all over the city. If they could link up with the love of God through us, they'd be so, so thrilled. But I want to say, when I say let the love show, this is not just a message for seekers, it's for you and me. I think it's taken me years to realize this, but I believe it with all my heart, more and more and more, we need one another. God's gift for you and for me is one another. It seriously is. I don't have to have great prophetic powers to know. There are going to be chapters of your life which are going to challenge you to the core. And the same for me. It's what happens. There are bumps along the road. And we're not designed to get through them alone. In fact, you won't get through them alone. And Sundays alone will not be enough. You know, there is something glorious about God's family coming together on a Sunday, but it's impersonal somewhat. You don't share the secrets of your heart with a large group. We need every single one of us, and of course this is, I'll come to this in a second, very challenging COVID times, but we need to find a way where we can relate to people in a small group. Because that's where the business happens. For your spiritual health, for your general well-being, there has to be a place where you are known and where you feel safe enough to reveal what's really going on and you know you'll be loved and accepted, and you know you'll be challenged, and you know you'll grow spiritually. And friends, throughout the history of the church, this has happened in small groups. It's all there in scripture. They met in the house of so-and-so, they met in the house of so-and-so. When Liz and I were in Cambridge these last 17 years, for a good period of time, we commuted to London every other Thursday to join a small group because to us, it was so precious to be part of a small group where we could be real and they could be real and we could encourage each other on. My very first small group was here at St. Michael's. I, I was 21 years old, I was led by Brad Kelly. He lived in Sloan Court West. And um, I used to think that I was seriously blessing him and his wife when I turned up straight from work, about an hour before the scheduled start of a small group. 
They hadn't put their child to bed, but I didn't mind. And um, I, I would help them with Douglas. And then uh, we would have a small group. And then I thought it was a great help to them if I'd stayed on and discussed it with them for an hour afterwards. I just thought, why don't we have a post-mortem? Brad, what can we do better next week? Um, how can we pray for so-and-so? And then when they were totally and utterly, utterly, utterly exhausted, I would go, thinking that was a great night and I was such a blessing. And what I realize now, you know, it's sacrificial to run a small group. It, it takes a lot out of you. But we said at the beginning, they devoted themselves to the teaching and to the fellowship. And this is where the love happens. This is where the love happens. As I said at the beginning, one of the things we're having to do, our adventure together really, is these are the values I'm setting before you, but how does it work out in COVID times? How do we have a meaningful small group when you're not allowed to meet together so easily or you can only have six people in a room? And what are we going to do to make sure that people are not lonely? And how can we come alongside people in a, in a genuine way which isn't patronizing? These are the things we've got to set our minds to, don't you think? And, and one of the things that I am um, concerned about, just a kind of private thing really, is I think we've all got a tendency, me included, towards consumerism. And when it comes to a church, it's just the same. Uh, in the months I had off to recover from COVID, I can share with you, Liz and I joined three churches in America and left three churches in America, all by the internet. But, you know, it, it was very comfortable because we were just consumers. They, they were, to some extent, the entertainers, and we, we just bought the product free for as long as we liked. But this community that we're looking at was not like that. Yeah, because part of what it means to belong to God's family is you give of yourself. You give, 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 and the Holy Spirit helps you more and more and more. Well, I'm going to move on to the third thing, but the second one is let the love show, and that's what I've been illustrating. And the third ring, and all these belong together, and I wouldn't actually prioritize any one above the others. All five have to belong together, and this is the last one we're going to look at tonight. Let the worship flow. As I've said, this community was centered around the risen Christ. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, we're told, praising God. And we can tell then that they didn't give up the habit of going to worship in the temple. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, you know what happened at the beautiful gate on the way to worship. Now, when we worship God together, we are doing what we were made to do. Now, I've heard preachers say that the whole world over, and I've sort of often blanked out at that point and haven't connected with it. So let me try a little bit just to unpack it. It seems to me that the one thing that we do for God, the one thing that we do for God, for which we demand nothing at all in return, is worship him. I remember being very offended a few years ago when I rang someone up and the first thing they said was, what can I do for you? 
And I was completely put off my stride. In fact, you know, I really wanted to put the phone down right then and there. Because I thought, is that what they think this relationship is all about? That I just would only pick up the phone when I want something? Why shouldn't it be possible to have a conversation that doesn't want anything? And I think it's important that we spend time in God's company when we don't want anything. We're not making demands upon him. We're simply putting him in his rightful place. And that is, we're exalting the Lord our God and worshipping at his footstool. We are elevating him, we are magnifying him. We're willingly belittling ourselves and we're willingly submitting to him and saying, you're the creator and I am the creature and I live to please you and I live to serve you and I must give you the praise that's in my heart. God isn't really, I think, so much looking for doctrinal purity, although that's a desirable thing. God isn't really looking for those who know his word backwards, although that's a desirable thing. He's not necessarily looking for activity and busyness, although he calls us to be active for him. But we're told he is seeking worshippers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And when we as God's people submit to him and express what's going on in our hearts genuinely, when we are that kind of a worshipping church, that brings honour to God. It pleases him. And I would like him to know that whenever he walks around London and whenever he comes into St Michael's, he will always find us like that, praising him, submitting to him, magnifying him. Let me tell you a story somewhat against myself, I think. It's becoming clear to you that I like preaching. Now, I've devoted a large part of my life to preaching, to preparing sermons and reading God's word and reading commentaries, etc., etc., etc. And for a large portion of my life, I thought that's where the action is. You know, that, that's what... Um, nails the congregation. This is how conversions happen. Well, I still believe that. But I started to hear from people all over the world that it's the presence of God that cuts people to the quick. Of course, they're not alternatives. They belong together. And a part of my pride was hurt to discover, we, we were part of a little group in, in Salisbury as it happened, and by some move of God, a midweek group of women grew from a handful to a few hundred. And the most common story that people told us of how they encountered God was they said, I came to this meeting, I didn't know anything about anything, I didn't know anyone, I didn't, but I sat in the room while I saw these people singing out praise to God. And I sensed that what they were doing was genuine, was genuine. I saw the connection between 
their faces, their hearts, their bodies, the sounds. And I felt the presence of God. I felt the presence of God. And I wanted to come back and I wanted to be there and I wanted to bask in it. And over time, I now know what was going on. Guys, I was so humbled by that. It wasn't really what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear Rupert's talks were magnificent. The, the heavens opened, the skies parted, and I knew that Jesus died for me. That wasn't a joke. <laughs> I like to think the word of God had something to do with it. It is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. But the presence of God had a lot to do with it. And authentic worship is a trademark of God's presence in his church. And that has to be one of our values. And I was preaching about it just the other day, wasn't I? How to cultivate a song in your heart no matter what. And I'm putting it up here as one of our values. And I'm saying that what really matters is authenticity, integrity. That what comes out of our, our mouth and our song is reflecting what's going on in our heart. And I, I can just hazard a guess that in a diverse congregation, diverse in age, diverse in stage, we'd have a diversity in our musical tastes. And so it's essential that what we don't do is sit in judgment over one another or over one style of, against another. God sees the secrets of our hearts. It's integrity he's after. And I want our worship to be led by believers taking us into the presence of God. What could be wrong with that? That is what we do, and we're a team. All of us, it's so frustrating that we can't all sing right now. But I've got a funny idea. Not that funny, because I think it's practical. We are allowed to be led in worship, are we not? And I don't see why some people, well, if I was going to be cheap and trick you, I'd put it like this. <laughs> How many, I won't, don't, don't do this. But I could ask you, put your hand up if you're longing to sing a hymn. No, 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 I said don't put your hand up because you'll be tricked if you do. See, I could say, and I would fully expect, you know, unless you want to be sort of weirdo in this context, of course you're going to put your hand up, you want to sing. So then I'd say, okay, we can put 25 seats behind me, socially distanced appropriately, and we can provide you with masks. Would you be our worship leaders next Sunday morning and sing a hymn? Yes! <laughs> MJ, you count for 25. <laughs> but, you know, we've got to find a way to express our devotion to the Lord. I'm so frustrated that we can't. But we will. We will. We have to let the worship flow. But let me just say one thing before um, we do close with a song, a prayer and a song. I'm making it sound very simple to worship God in spirit and in truth. But it isn't. Because Paul says in Romans 12, doesn't he, that we should offer ourselves a living sacrifice, which is our acceptable worship. The problem with being a living sacrifice is that you always want to crawl off the altar. It, it takes a tremendous act of will to stay in a place of submission to God. And if you want to find out, actually, I mean, all of us worship something, that's the truth. 
But if you want to find out what you really worship, ask someone who knows you really well. What do I talk about most? What do I think about most? Where does my money go? Because that reflects what you really worship. And for us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, it's going to take an effort. But we want to do it. We want to be those people. I'm, I can be quite um, determined if I need to be. And I'm determined, however long this COVID season goes on, we will praise the Lord. However much we don't understand what he's doing around the world, we will choose to trust him. However challenging it is for us as a community to find ways to support one another, we're going to do it. Because God will not let us down. The Lord does reign. He is not taken by surprise by COVID. And we are the answer to each other's prayers in this context. And we are going to see each other through this and at the other side. And not just each other, people are going to join us who are going to see that there is a good way of living through this. Um, I'm, next week, I'm going to uh, look with you at the final two uh, interlocking values. But we're going to end this meeting. Uh, I've invited uh, the little group up on the stage, and they're going to sing hymn. I think you know you are, yes? To God be the glory, great things he's done. And I thought we could just stand, and we could, uh, in our hearts, rejoice that this is true. Is that okay? Can I just pray for us? Lord Jesus, thank you that you have invested your life, poured out your life for us, your treasured possession. And we don't want to take for granted anything that has been highlighted tonight. We, we stand in awe that you would reach out to us, that you'd reveal yourself through your word. And Lord, we want to walk in the truth. We want to be instructed by you and changed by you. And we want to share your word too. And thank you, Lord, that your community looks so attractive that people did say, see how they love one another. And thank you that's already, in so many ways, a hallmark of St. Michael's. And Lord, we pray that more and more people would come to experience the very same love that we've experienced and we might share it to them and be part of that. And when it comes to worship, Lord, as that hymn says, we pour contempt on all our pride. We ask, Lord, that we might lift up our eyes to see your face and you would see into our hearts, you'd see into our lives that it's our heart's desire to magnify you to praise you. And we pray that you would somehow school us at this time, which is so unfamiliar to us. We don't, we feel cramped that we can't sing. We feel cheated that we come together and we can't reach out and touch one another. But Lord, there has to be a way that these values can be expressed. And we pray that you would teach us how to do it. And even now, as we sing this wonderful hymn, where it's sung over us, See that all of our hearts are singing, even if we can't 
articulated in sound. In Jesus' name, amen.